Welcome to Two Age Sojourner, and uh, today on the lead up to Christmas on Smoking Saturday, I have a gift wrapped present for you. Uh, so get out your cigar and let's get ready for this. So I trust that cigar is nicely lit or the pipe or whatever you're doing and you're just chilling out or you're doing dishes or you're um, uh, just doing something completely different and uh, you just want to chill out and listen to this podcast. That's okay too, but you should start smoking. It's really important to smoke. No, I'm just kidding. Um, So what we want to do in this uh, Smoking Saturday is just that we've had a couple of... um, Shows about Christmas on, uh, you know, just been back and forth about it, just thinking, mulling it over while drinking mulled wine. Uh, wow, I just thought of that on the fly. That's amazing. And then it just, um, I thought, hey, Smoking Saturday, it's usually usually something I'm just kind of soloing on. And I thought, let me just get to reading this um, this blog thing that I did a while ago where I kind of got all the thoughts that I wanted to get down and uh, that gets lost in whatever your history or archives of the blog. So I thought, hey, this would make a great Christmas present, right? I'm going to give you today, right now, a free, um, what do you call it, audio blog. I I was going to say audio book, but it's, yeah, I mean, not quite at book status, but it's got chapters, you know, blogs can be chapters. And so, yeah, you usually have to buy this kind of stuff. You know, you have to buy an audiobook. I'm giving you a free audio blog on this session. And uh, so you just lay back, relax, and uh, I'll read, I'll narrate my audio blog to you. Oh, uh, that is my free gift to you on Christmas. All right, here we go. Reflecting on Christmas. Written by Michael Beck, narrated by Michael Beck. That's right, yours truly. Chapter 1. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. As we come to discuss the subject of Christmas, few things serve to illustrate the need for both meditation and reflection in the way that this season and day does. In many ways, it is nothing less than a case study for the argument that sacred and secular should be thought of in two distinct realms. The one, a sacred meditation, the other, more of a secular reflection. That said, as two-age sojourners, we are also dual citizens, and just as surely as we live in the great overlap of the ages, there will always be a degree of overlap in these otherwise distinct realms. Thus entereth the complexity. There is no doubt whatsoever that the waters have been muddied along the way, from issues of pagan origin and the age of Christendom, all the way through to matters of contemporary Western cultural practice. Christmas has become a complex issue, to say the least. In fact, if we're not careful, it can leave us feeling like we've got a giant cultural hangover to deal with. Christians have, of course, engaged or reacted to the festive season very differently. Some reject the practice altogether. No Christmas trees or anything. What can I say? Those brothers are cold. On the other end of the spectrum, there are Christians that are so enthusiastic in their embrace of the season that they allow themselves to pretend that the whole world has decided to celebrate Jesus' birth. Even the shopping malls are doing it. Glorious. 
But then, thank goodness, there are the sane ones, those who seek balance in all things, like a, a kind of Christian Zen. For every bit of yin, there must be a sufficient amount of opposing yin. And in order to counterbalance every bit of drooling, consumerist, shopping spree, or grossly pagan Santa movie, there must be at least one part, Christmas Hillsong Playlist, and another part, Extra Stern Family Bible Study. Yep, you know the one. Now kids. The Bible teaches that it's better to give than to receive. Others, still, like you or me perhaps, find the whole process somewhat vexing. We know that there is something truly good in all of this, right? It's the birth of our Savior we're talking about for crying out loud. But we know that there is more to think about. At very least, we know this because of what we see. In the very same cultural mixing pot, there are some things that are very good, some things that are okay, some things that are weirdly ominous, and other things just plain diabolical. There they all are, swirling around and around, turning into the color of tinsel green, and watching it all makes our head turn to the color green as well. But never fear, I'm going to show you how a two-age sojourner deals with this. Chapter 2 What Hath Jingle Bells to Do with Silent Night? The issue boils down to this. The Christmas season is a time when we hear both Jingle Bells and Silent Night on the same Christmas album. Just so that we let this sink in properly, let's start with the sampling of the lyrics in Silent Night. They go something like this Silent Night. Holy night, son of God, love's pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Now bear in mind, I could have picked almost any other hymn, carol, whatever, instead of this one. My point being simply this. Christmas carols at this level make up a profound part of the church's hymnody and have some of the most theologically rich lyrics in existence. All right then, next, a sampling from Jingle Bells. Are you ready? Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells, Jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Notice any difference in the emphasis? I think so. Yet, as we know, one song is happily sung alongside the other at Christmas time. But following Tertullian's famous question regarding Athens, Jerusalem, and the mixing of philosophy with theology, we might well ask of this situation, what hath Jingle Bells to do with Silent Night anyway? Well, let me start by pointing out once again that Christmas time is a truly great example in showcasing the value of understanding a biblical distinction between the sacred and the secular. In order to answer the question then, we need to focus in on three key ideas. Number one, the holy. Number two, the common. And number three, the profane. And we'll look at these in the next chapter. Chapter three, profane Christmas. As promised, we're talking more about Christmas and its more profane elements. 
In this regard, usually the issue of pagan spirituality is of foremost concern to most hesitant Christians. For one thing, many are worried about the pagan origins of the festival, so we might well ask, is this a legitimate concern? Well, without trying to derail this time with what is better suited to a research paper, here I would say, while there have indeed been debates back and forth on the issue, even a cursory glance at the research indicates a strong weightedness in favor of the thesis that Christmas does indeed have pagan roots, and that this pagan festival was being practiced long before the birth of Christ. If you're interested, most likely this was a festival dedicated to the celebration of the rebirth of the baby god to a mother goddess during the time of the winter solstice, uh, and well, we'll just leave it at that, I think. Now, it's certainly true that from a scriptural standpoint, idolatry of this nature is in the realm of the profane. But that was then and this is now. So lest we fall prey to any genetic fallacy, we need to be wary of letting the matter of origins sway an honest evaluation of current practice. Indeed, even though pagan origin is often the first issue of concern, it's not what I primarily have in mind when thinking about Christmas's connection to pagan spirituality. In fact, at times, the issue of origin might even serve as a red herring to the real issue of contemporary practice, which seem uh, to all but engulf some Christians who are otherwise merrily whistling along their way. Beyond the contemporary humanistic and New Age spirituality that has come to be symbolized by the ubiquitous presence of Santa and his elves, most problematic of all is the syncretism that occurs when these ideas are mixed with Christian themes. Whether this mix oozes out at the level of Hollywood production, and examples that come to mind here are Legion, or merely in the humble school nativity play, this mix of themes presents for us by far the biggest no-no, as it involves the outright mixing of the holy and the profane, which according to scripture is never a good thing. Of course, there is the whole Catholic Mass at Christmas debacle, a uh, display of this problem par excellence. But unfortunately, this is such a big historical target that the other equally problematic things go unnoticed in quarters much closer to home. As long as we're not going to mass, we Protestants have no problem setting our longing eyes on Santa's sled, reverently singing, O Holy Night, while our hearts are deeply engaged and downright appreciative for the blessed and magical experience of Christmas. And if you think that's a bit far-fetched, I'd ask you to think again. In the same vein, otherwise normal Protestant evangelical churches will often be swept away in the cheer of the season to do all but totally desecrate the regulative principle of worship. You know the stories, and they get real bad. Like preachers in Santa suits bad. To say the very least, that previous freedom of conscience that the reformers gave their lives for is hardly given a second thought by so many evangelical churches during this time. Instead, they mix the holy and the profane as if it was nothing more than a Christmas cocktail. But then, beyond the issue of religious syncretism, in itself a profane thing through and through, we have those issues of rampant greed and consumerism that manifest in unique and amazing ways during this time of year. In fact, perhaps more than any other point of the year, the December-January period serves as an expose on the problems of first world materialism. To say the least, spending is totally out of control. Holiday fever takes hold of us all in a big way. This leads quickly to a whole host of other sins, all involving flagrant lack of self-control. Let's face it, they don't call it the silly season for nothing. It's a crazy time, 
and in this way there is indeed an uncanny resemblance to the ancient pagan festival. For some or another reason, it's been this way for centuries, and it's kind of scary like that. Here's the bottom line then. While we might indeed feel the season's cheer in the air, much of the talk and paraphernalia that goes with it is a cover-up for the profane. And we, as two-age sojourners, shouldn't be naive at Christmas time. Moreover, we shouldn't feel bad for feeling like it's a time when extra caution is needed. Though this might well at its worst lead to mild forms of ostracization, it also means that we stay sober-minded during all the mayhem. Christians need to be discerning at all times. We don't get to drop this God simply because it's Christmas, it's Christmas. That is a profane idea, not a holy one. Now here's the thing. Despite the presence of the profane, my goal is not to condemn the cultural experience altogether. Quite the opposite. I actually embrace it, Christmas trees and all. So what gives? Well, that's coming in the next chapter. Chapter 4. Christmas and the Common The next question is this. Should we as Christians celebrate Christmas at all? Well, I do. But how then is this not flagrant hypocrisy? Condemning Christmas as something profane on the one hand and yet advocating its celebration with the other. Well, to answer that, here's where we need to talk about the second key idea, the common. For the purposes of this <clears throat> discourse, let's start off by defining key terms. Holy means something sacred, set apart by God. Profane means that which is sinful or opposite of holy. Common, something neither holy nor profane. In this sense, it is common to both the sacred and secular realms. Now, keep in mind that there is a ton more to say about each of these terms, but this should be enough to keep us tracking for the moment. And then just before we get to using these terms, let's make sure that the whole pagan origin thing is not throwing us off any more than it needs to. I've already alluded to the fallacy of logic, the genetic fallacy, that seeks to prohibit a current practice based on its origin. So to finish our collection of definitions, Here's a quick and dirty cut and paste for you from an unquestionably trusted source, Wikipedia. The genetic fallacy, also known as the fallacy of origins or fallacy of virtue, is a fallacy of irrelevance, where a conclusion is suggested based solely on someone's or something's history, origin, or source, rather than its current meaning or context. This overlooks any difference to be found in the present situation typically transferring the positive or negative esteem from the earlier context. This problematic logic often surfaces in attempts at Christian discernment, and this on a wide variety of issues. But put as simply as possible, it doesn't work. If I want to go and, let's say, snowboard, it should not matter what the origin of the snowboard is. Neither should the origin of the practice of snowboarding matter in coming to a conclusion as to whether snowboarding is permissible. And that's really good news because it means I don't have to lay the board down if it is suddenly uncovered that the snowboard was first used as a form of pagan revelry. It's irrelevant. Rather, the question I need to ask myself is this. What is it currently used for? Or how is the practice currently understood? If it's still about witchcraft and sexual debauchery by all means, lay the board down, my friend. However, if it's just about going out there and catching some slopes, well, that's the end of it. 
You go get him, Tiger. Now, bringing this same idea over to Christmas, because albeit a tad more complex, it's more or less the same sort of deal. That's why I feel that way too much time and effort is invested into searching out the origin of Christmas. The better question is, what does the cultural experience of Christmas mean for us now? How is it understood now? How is it practiced now? In consideration then of the current practice, here's the rub. For all that we might say about the various non-Christian themes running through the Santa story, the whole thing is basically a super fun, friendly, kind of humanistic story for kids. And by kids, I mean both, you know, child and adult kids. But no matter how we look at it, the contemporary Christmas practice is a bit of an insult to its pagan religious forebearer. And maybe I do need to get out a bit more. But in all my days on this green earth, I've never come across any personal family that bows down before their Christmas tree on the 25th of December to celebrate the rebirth of a demigod during the glorious winter solstice, right? Never seen it. I have noticed, however, that the kinds of people most likely to celebrate that sort of thing are wearing hemp shoes and mocking first world suburbia for its blind participation in this utterly unspiritual practice of giving and receiving gifts, largely manufactured and produced by little children in China. And hey, maybe they have a point, but more to our particular topic, I think it's safe to say that we can take pagan practice, in any rootsy sense at least, right off the table when it comes to Christmas as it is currently understood. As I tried to point out in the last chapter, beyond the greed-oriented sins of the silly season, the real profanity of Christmas lies in its desecration of the regulative principle, an unbridled Christian syncretism that goes along with it. As freaky as New Age spiritualists can be, the only ones who might actually bow down to the tree are Christians who have come up with a jolly seasonal way to worship Jesus. I mean, after all, they must have had a tree in the stable, right? There was certainly a star on top of the tree, and everyone was giving lots of oriental Christmas praises to Jesus. Yikes. What can I say? This is the kind of stuff that Christians truly need to reject and stand against. This is where we need to be truly cautious and discerning. I'll say more about that in the next chapter when we look at the holy. But for now, let's appreciate that greed, sin, and Christian syncretism excluded, much of what we find at Christmas is in the realm of the common. And aside the extreme corniness often associated to some customs, there are many things to be genuinely glad about. Even if the shopping malls want to do their bit to promote goodwill among men, I'm all for it. I mean, free gift wrapping. Are you kidding me? Yes, please. If general virtues like peace, joy, love, and generosity are free-flowing from otherwise sinful hearts during this time of year, then seriously, who am I to stand in the way? As Paul would say, against such things, there is no law. But isn't the whole thing just a big marketing campaign? Who knows? Probably. But aren't these virtues advocated in light of a glaring inconsistency with the unbeliever's worldview? Yep, definitely. But hey, that's the whole deal with common grace. Some have even argued that the grace is the inconsistency itself. But whatever the case, as two-age sojourners, we don't have to worry about that sort of thing. We use the opportunity to love our neighbor. You see, there we go. Now you're feeling it. So stop being such a grinch. If you want to celebrate Christmas with your family, go right ahead. Just keep the ideas of the profane, the common, and the holy nice and distinct in your mind. What hath Jingle Bells to do with Silent Night? Nothing at all. So don't confuse the issue. 
I love what McMahon said in this regard. I'm all for Frosty the Snowman, Jack Frost, Winter Wonderlands, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, exchanging presents, eating candy canes, enjoying really good eggnog, stuffing stockings in, watching Elf with Will Ferrell, or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, classically sung by Burl Ives, as well as all the other holiday festivities. Why? They do not violate, in any way, the regulative principle. So, understand that when trying to distinguish between common and the profane, your efforts to merge Bible stories with Christmas trees are the only problem. If you're into eggnog, Christmas trees, and shopping, go for it. Be my guest. Tell your kids pretend stories about Santa just the way that you tell them about teddy bears having picnics. But for heaven's sake, don't merge the Santa story with the nativity. Rather, teach your kids that they should want to worship the one true God of heaven and earth and that they should love and celebrate the birth of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But they also need to know that the Lord of all glory has prescribed the exact means through which to do this. And this great God tolerates no strange fire. So here's the bottom line then. Stay away from sin. Love your neighbor. And celebrate the fun of the Western First World Shopping Mall Christmas. But when it comes to worshiping God, do it as you ought. Go to church. Celebrate in word and sacrament. Do it on the Lord's Day. That's Sunday. And by all means, use that time to delve deep into the unfathomably rich theology of Christ's incarnation. But let me stop here because we're crossing into the territory of the holy. And that's what we want to talk about in the final chapter. Chapter 5. Taking Christ Out of Christmas and talking about the holy. I'm advocating that as two-age sojourners, we need to divide asunder those categories that have become horribly muddled over the last two millennia. The worst part is that this muddling has happened and continues to happen as a result of good intent. Whenever well-meaning Christians of any age start trying to redeem things, that's definitely the first problem. We should not be redeeming things, ever. That's always Jesus' job. The second problem is that our efforts to merge sacred and secular end up in religious syncretism. The whole thing kind of reminds me of a somewhat but not actually related issue, the ancient heresy of Eutychianism. If you happen to be familiar with this heresy, you'll remember the way that in trying to figure out how Jesus' divine and human natures work together, Eutychius ended up throwing it all into one big bucket. He ended up with a version of Christ that was neither God nor man and was therefore no good to anyone. Not good. So much for the blend method. In fact, the blend method never works, especially when Christology is in view. Thus, the somewhat forced overlap with this topic. When it comes to the great big Christendom Christmas hand-me-down, Christology is definitely in view, and the blend problem once again rears its ugly head. So, even today then, here we are, trying to keep things from blending. We're trying to keep jingle bells separate from Silent Night. Good. Rightly so. To state it more provocatively, we're trying to keep Christ out of Christmas. I'm sure you'll agree with me. Untangling the cultural theological spaghetti of Christmas is not as easy as we might have hoped. Indeed, a whole host of questions come to mind. Firstly, in thinking about Christmas, that is to say, going to the Mass of the 25th of December, for the purposes of celebrating the birth of Christ. And yep, that's where the name does come from, Christ Mass. Perhaps the first question is this, am I meant to go to church on Christmas Day? 
Well, I'll start by giving you a fair warning here. I am confessionally reformed. So maybe that's a clue as to how I might approach this. What saith the scriptures is always going to be the all-important settler in any topic and discussion. And maybe you picked that up in the last chapter when I pretty much begged you on the basis of the regulative principle to stop merging the Santa story with the nativity. But then even beyond getting those Santa hats off of the worship leaders and beyond getting those blasted Christmas trees out of the church sanctuary, I would strongly advocate teaching your kids that when it comes to celebrating the birth of Christ, Christ himself has prescribed the exact means through which to do this. Church, Word, Sacrament, Lord's Day. Four things. Certainly not the 25th of December Mass or any Protestant rendition of it or any other homestay version for that matter. Let me offer you a paragraph from the great Spurgeon himself, a brother who felt my pain on this. He says, and I quote, We have no superstitious regard for times and seasons. Certainly we do not believe in the present ecclesiastical arrangement called Christmas. First, because we do not believe in the Mass at all, but abhor it, whether it be said or sung in Latin or in English. And secondly, because we find no scriptural warrant, whatever, for observing any day as the birthday of the Savior. And consequently, its observance is a superstition, because not of divine authority. Yep, that was from Charles Spurgeon. But what does this actually mean for those who really want to honor the Lord and make best use of the current seasonal inclination to think upon Christ? Well, as I bridge into this and some of the other questions like it, here's one more quote, again from Spurgeon. He says, and I quote, We venture to assert that if there be any day in the year of which we may be pretty sure that it was not the day in which the Savior was born, it is the 25th of December. Regarding not the day, let us, nevertheless, give thanks to God for the gift of his dear Son. End quote. Now, two things there. Firstly, we really don't know the day of Christ's birth, and the closest reckonings leave us in and around the month of September, during the Feast of the Tabernacles, some debate to and fro on that point. Secondly, regarding not the day, let us nevertheless give thanks to God for the gift of his dear son, Spurgeon says. This is absolutely key. For a Christian, the only thing wrong with doing this is if we're only doing it once a year. Perish the thought. Every day and every hour we're rejoicing in the gift of the Savior and the gift not merely in the birth of Jesus, but uh, in his death, resurrection, and second coming. This together is the gift of the gospel. When we worship as a church in response to the gospel, we do it in the scripturally prescribed manner. But of course, we're also to worship God in response to the gospel in ways that go beyond corporate worship. Certainly, we give thanks for the gospel in our own homes as individual families of the church. Once again, ideally, these times of family devotion are going to be more than just once a year. And then obviously, we are also to give thanks during our personal times of prayer. In fact, there is something severely wrong with our personal time of prayer if this is not the case. And so when we look at the 25th of December from this perspective, and surely this is how we should look at it, any routine and rhythm of devotion on this day is entirely appropriate. Evangelism even. You betcha. 
Why the heck not? However, this is not because it's Christmas, but rather because, drumroll please, it is Christianity. So, by all means then, use the season's inclination as a time to either evangelize or to delve deep into the rich theology of Christ's incarnation, or both. As two-aged sojourners, we know the sacred and we pursue it with all of our hearts. Together with this, we know the secular and the liberties that we're allowed along the way. We don't ever conflate these, just as surely as there is an all-important difference between the journey and the destination. But finally then, we also know the limits, and we adamantly refuse to partake in the profane. So on this day, the day of December the 25th, we, the two-aged sojourners, stand together. We're taking the Christ out of Christmas, and we're putting the sacred name of Jesus back where it should be. The End This book was read to you by Michael Beck. If you want more books like this, then uh, don't go to Amazon because they're not there. Uh, keep tuning in for some more Two Age Sojourner. Thanks for joining me today. Mm-hmm.